Hello, DER Task Force. Welcome to episode nine, the age of the electron. We have some bold and crazy ideas in here, so I hope you all are excited. Two quick notes before we dive in. First, this episode was inspired by Faye Wong of Wood Mackenzie's presentation. As always, you can find the slides on drtaskforce.com. And a quick reminder that the views that we express here are personal views, not the views of our companies. With that, let's get into the episode. The point is that America has enough renewable resources such that we could probably keep exactly the same lifestyles. And if we do it all electrically, we can do it at half the energy. And we can produce all of that energy cleanly domestically in America. Saul Griffith, who uh, founded Rewiring America, and everybody's been talking about it. And basically, their whole thing is electrifying everything. And so I think it's a really poignant quote for us to start with. Questions aside, which we can get into on whether 50% reduction is the actual reduction. Because Beneficial electrification and electrifying everything is on everybody's minds these days. It's all the rage and how we're going to fight climate change. And so today we're going to talk about it. We're going to like get into the details. We're going to get wonky. This is sort of partially coming from a prior presentation by Fei Wong, who presented it at DR Task Force on electrification of buildings. But we're going to broaden this to the sort of electrification umbrella, which includes transportation, like electric vehicles, trucks, ferries, etc., all sorts of heating. So building space and water heating in the residential and commercial sectors, electrification of appliances, those induction ovens, you know, heat pumps, heat pump clothes dryers, that's a thing. What about fireplaces? Is there an electric fireplace? Not for heat, just for like coolness. Not that look is nice. Like your Netflix Uh, fireplace. Don't you like flick them on? I mean, I think that's still gas. They're the ones that just like glow, but those are kind of not cool. Yeah. Yeah. There's not a cool one. All right. So like episode over, really, we really can't do this. (laughs) Everything but fireplaces. Well, if we electrify enough, we can still like, you know, burn fires and stuff and feel fine about it. Yeah. I guess if it's, you know, like sustainable wood, then you're probably... Okay. But anyway, let's move on. Let's move on. Is it a bad way to start this episode saying I'll, I'll probably always own at least one like internal combustion car and also will burn fires for the rest of my life. Yes. (laughs) Just like the ape in me (laughs) won't let it go. We're going to have to just stick you on some Island. I I think I I started on the wrong foot. I shouldn't have started there, but. (laughs) We'll get you like a biodiesel vehicle, but no. So so beneficial electrification, right? So it covers all of these sectors of transportation, heating, appliance, electrification from gas and oil to electricity. And the sort of foundational premise is that by electrifying fossil fuel-based end uses, we can decarbonize the energy industry much more quickly because we feel pretty confident in our ability to make the electricity grid green from renewable resources a lot better than we do to make renewable gas a thing. So there's like two actions here. There's one, you got to convert things that combust stuff like car engines to electric cars. And then two, you got to actually make the electricity supplying those now electrified things green. Totally. I mean, we're going to focus more on the electrification aspect because I think obviously a lot of the other podcasts uh, focus on the greening of the electricity supply, but there's some challenges in there. So those just had to point out, those are like two separate actions there. So really, I think the question we're asking ourselves here is, is beneficial electrification beneficial? Totally. Those two things aren't enough, right? It's not enough to just make things electric and make the the grid green because that's going to lead to sort of this like weird overbuild of renewables in a way that I don't think is actually sustainable. I think you need to add in flexibility markets to like achieve beneficial electrification in a way that isn't wasteful. Okay. Duncan, do you have a take here? Mine is similar. I'd say slightly different, but mine is like, yes, beneficial. But I think we underweight the difficulty of it on the distribution grid, not transmission, not how we're going to get enough renewable energy, but what's actually going to happen at the feeder level when a house that, you know, in... 2018 consumed X amount of electricity or had X peak demand is now 2X, 2.5X peak demand and it's in the other side of the year. 
you basically have to like double the capacity of the grid. You're saying like if we had a four lane highway everywhere, now we need like eight lane, eight lane highways. Yeah. And not, yeah, exactly. Like, and like across the whole system. So anyway, my, my answer is yes, beneficial. It's going to be tough. And I think we have it less worked out than we think. It's crazy to me what we're proposing. And I, I love it because I'm, I'm pretty nuts myself, as if you haven't noticed so far. But if you look at it in one dimension, like doubling, say, to, from 38% to 80% electricity use, and then another dimension, like actually 5x, if you think about like the end use. So I don't know. I'm just like, is this even possible? Like, what are we even talking about? It's insane to me. We're like, we're, we're moving from a combustion economy to like an electric economy, right? That's like a much bigger thing than like, can the distribution grid handle it? Or do we have flexibility markets? I think those are important components within it. And they're the right problems to talk about and getting there like mechanically. But I, I kind of wanted to frame the conversation from this like much broader discussion of like, it's a really crazy thing that we're proposing. <laughs> and I like, I don't think you can avoid that in the discussion to like, just have the macro conversation. So we're going to have a little, you know, if you guys love Vaslav Smil out there, we're going to get a little out there, but that that's my take. I don't, it's not really, it's kind of a non-take, but. It is crazy, right? Like taking transportation and heating, which have for the most part in most parts of the country been fossil based and being like, we're going to put it on the electric grid. And like, we're going to fundamentally change utilities that, you know, electric and gas utilities, sure, maybe you're just switching customers, but like, you're creating state policies that are actively like, poaching customers from the gas side to the electric side. I think the way into it is, you know, almost go component by component, because like electrification and transportation and electrification and residential homes are two like almost totally different things. So then residential and commercial is talking about what primarily heating, right? Like cooling is already is electric. Mostly there's some gas fired chillers, but like space heating, space heating, water heating. Do we want to start with with heating then? Like what generally do we think are the impacts and interesting parts about electrifying space heating? So there's internal combustion engines, right? Like cars or even how we generate electricity. Those are like engines and turbines. But then heating is like boilers, right? So just like lighting stuff on fire to like heat water up. <laughs> it's like still how we do. I always, I'm sorry, I just have to do an aside here. I get so like disillusioned by everyone being like, we live in this future where everyone has like a computer in their pocket and all this stuff. I'm like, all this stuff runs on just like blowing shit up. Like that's how we, that's like how we exist as a species still. We just like light, light stuff on fire. And we've done that starting in like the 1700s, 1600s, like moving away from wood. And so now we're proposing like, is heat pumps like the groundbreaking technology to pull us out of that? Like, if you think about it, it's always been like some really groundbreaking technology that's caused these transitions, right? And in like the macro and, and the political kind of issues of today, can be drivers of that. But when you read the history books, like 500 years from now, it's gonna be like, okay, the steam engine was invented or something like that. So like I, when the thing that struck me in Faye's presentation is I, I don't even think, and no like discredit to Faye because she rules in her presentation ruled, but in solar, when we deploy incentives, it's to bring a technology down a cost curve, right? It's to like jumpstart the market and like get economies of scale and manufacturing. No one could really answer, and I haven't been able to answer since, like if that's actually true in heat pumps. Like, are heat pumps better than like boilers? You know, are, are they actually as a technology, are they going to get cheaper? Like, what are the actual benefits? When you talk about beneficial electrification, like what is beneficial about it, like to the person being warmed by it, in a way, right? Because it's 10x better, people just adopt it. But if not, like it's gonna be a battle, you know? Yeah, and I think the big thing with heat pumps that's complicated, especially in cities, is that it is really expensive to replace. And when oil and gas are cheap, it's not necessarily cost-effective in the short term if you are only looking at the cost of energy, right? I think from compared to fuel oil, it's more cost effective and you also get like some health benefits, right? Of not like combusting something in your home, um, 
which isn't great. And then for natural gas side, I think the conversion, you really need to be taking into account like carbon and health societal benefits for it to make sense. And so then you have to deal with like the question of how, if it pencils at society, how do you make it pencil for individual consumers so that adoption actually occurs? And I do think there are areas of the country where the the difference between gas and electric rates, like it does pencil on OPEX because heat pumps, you know, are, this is not technically correct from a physics perspective, but essentially they're 300%, 400% efficient. Whereas obviously a boiler is like 85, 90, 95% efficient. So there are areas where that can actually work on the OPEX side and be a savings, but that doesn't necessarily mean it pays down the, the incremental CapEx in a reasonable time frame. And then there's areas like New York where it doesn't even save you money. So you pay more for it up front and you pay more for it every day. And I think there it's really hard. Yeah. And that's where you do need state incentives, right? That's where like utility incentives come in. Um, New York has a huge push for heat pumps to achieve electrification. But in other places, like when I lived in DC, every building had heat pumps. I lived in multiple apartments. They all had heat pumps. And that was just like the standard. And they had at that time, like electric resistance backup heat, but you didn't have to use it that much because DC didn't get that cold. And now there's all these new cold climate heat pumps. And so the technology has, James, I think to your point, the technology has gotten a lot better. So I think like technology has improved and costs have stayed relatively the same. So it's sort of like, kind of like the cost coming down. Right. Yeah. I think like reducing sales costs and stuff like that will be one of the big barriers because right now there's a large educational component, right? A lot of people think that heat pumps don't work in cold areas, like including contractors. And so the sales cycle is really difficult because people are like, I don't understand what this is. The other interesting point on like, how are these beneficial is that, you know, a heat pump that's reversible can also be your air conditioner. So if you're going to have a forced air cooling system and a forced air heating system where you used to have to have two things, a chiller and a furnace. Now you can have one thing. There's a CapEx benefit there that can come with that because the incremental cost of, if you're going to get an air conditioner, um, turning that into a reversible heat pump instead is, is X versus getting an air conditioner and a furnace is probably more than X. There it can be valuable. If you have a distribution system in your home or building that suits that, and maybe you don't, in which case now it goes back to being harmful because you have to like repipe a building or like run ducting everywhere. I go back to the like, <laughs> the smell like uh, energy return on energy investment, like as a, as a driver for like the development of civilizations and stuff. And like, you can do all these things locally that like make you feel good on paper, but when we talk about like shifting from like wood to coal or coal to oil, oil to, to gas really primarily, it's, it's all been these like gains in efficiency, right? And um, in this like macro sense, if you want the whole world like adopting heat pumps or whatever it is, it has to just be like fundamentally better that there's natural adoption for it. And, and incentives again, like can accelerate that cost curve to like make things happen faster, but I'm not really convinced still that residential or commercial heating will like meaningfully the needle will move over the next 20 years because of how much cheap gas we have. Like that's, that's ultimately a driver. Like we found this mountain of cheap gas in the U S and we're just going to keep using that for like 30 years. And I don't know what, unless you can actually price in the externalities of climate change, like really be like, this is what it costs. This is, you know, you have a carbon tax or whatever. Or another way to think of it is like what major kind of technology shifts have happened in kind of history based on purely social reasons, essentially. Like people maybe just be like, I don't want to burn anything. I want to, I want a heat pump. And until we can get there, like maybe we're there in 50% of the country right now, but globally, like, I don't know. So I always just kind of come back to that because I'm like, okay, it may look like things are moving along, but when I just look at kind of going back to like my physics background of the underlying economics and, and kind of performance of heat pumps versus boilers or whatever it is, I'm like, it's not there. I just don't think it's there. But where, where that's not true is like, have you, have you driven a Tesla and like put it on insane mode and push the gas? Like that is like <laughs> a superior 
piece of engineering. Like it is a ridiculously just like better, more efficient way of moving things around. Like, and it's so obvious and clear to me that regardless of an, any incentives out there today and like thankfully Tesla like pushed the, the needle forward and like got a lot of government money obviously to do that. But it's just like a better thing and it's good. People are just gonna adopt that naturally over time and it's more efficient, right? Like it's just, yeah, so I, I don't know. Like I'm kind of, I'm a bit pessimistic on like the heating commercial and resi side of things. So I do want to say heat pump water heaters, hugely efficient, save you a lot of money. Heat pump water heaters are like just universally considered- For your hot a, showers a and stuff? Win. Yeah, right. Like all sorts of water heating, right? So like but showers- But not space heating. Okay. I, but not I space heating. Space yeah. heating, I think you could get there. Like before, just before we leave transportation, I think like there's real potential as technology continues to improve and adoption increases. But I'm totally with you on EVs. Like people who have them love them. Let's put it that way. So uh, I'll make the case for heat pumps as like better technology that people will want. Okay. I think we're, and some people might disagree with this, but like we're earlier on heat pumps than we are on EVs. Like EVs, like there's a pretty clear path to just like battery costs are coming down. Like the cars are awesome. Like the whole industry is coalescing around this. Heat pumps started earlier, but have made less progress, but the initial markets are there. So first we have the Southeast. Heat pumps are the major source of home heating in the Southeast. Here's why. One, you need air conditioning in the Southeast, right? So you already have, well, technically a heat pump, but it's running in the wrong direction. And an air, central air, sort of like based prevalent HVAC system. And then two, you have a mild climate. So, you know, the, the OG heat pumps weren't great if it's, it was like super cold. At the extremes, yeah. And three, although, you know, if like Dominion keeps, you know, having fun with his customers, this might not be true forever, but three, traditionally they've had cheap power. You put those three things together and it makes sense to turn your central air system into a heat pump for like those handful of days where you need heat rather than like buy a whole new system to supplement that, that you're barely going to use. So that's like the initial market. And that's been like a thing, like for a long time. Interesting. So under certain parameters, it is better. Yeah. Yeah. And now you're seeing a second thing happen, which is, and it's kind of the opposite, interestingly, which is cold climates where heating's a major cost and where you're not connected to the gas grid, heat pumps can be a big win. This is like dandelion's business. Now they're geothermal heat pumps, but they're heat pumps mm. nonetheless, where you use a lot of heat and you have to use oil and oil sucks. Oil's expensive. You have to get it delivered. Like it has this non-monetary element too, which is like, oh shit, the tank's empty. I have to like call the oil guy and negotiate, but he knows he has me over a barrel or just like install a heat pump. Um, so you're starting to see it there too, where like the economics can start to work and it's way more convenient. And for all heat pumps, there's a third thing that's really interesting that I think people are starting to unlock, which is when your heating goes through your air distribution system, or rather when your HVAC goes through an air distribution system, rather than like your heating going through pipes, you now have the opportunity to filter your air. So like air-based HVAC actually offers a big benefit in the home, which is comfort and health, which people actually value now. Who, who's the one like heat pump evangelist guy on Twitter? Nate, Nate House Whisperer. <laughs> yeah, 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 that guy. I mean, I think he's right on though. This is really cool, which is like when I go to customers, like one, I definitely don't pitch like carbon. And two, like I don't necessarily pitch like OPEX savings. I pitch like your home's going to be more comfortable. It's going to be cleaner. I'm going to be able to address humidity. That's the other thing. Once you, you have like a system like this, you can start to deal with humidity. And it's going to be like all in one through one, you know, air-based system. You don't have to think about anything. And it's it's one unit that goes outside. And you can actually come out like with some relative payback period, even if maybe it's not great, like it's not stupid, you know? So I think we're like seeing kind of like the early stage markets like chipped down, right? Where we're not seeing it as like, I have an apartment in New York, like gas is 90 cents a therm and power is 24 cents a kilowatt hour. And like, there's nowhere to put a heat pump like that. We're not there. Yeah. Although I will argue on the no, nowhere to put a heat pump because in Hong Kong, they're everywhere. Like you look at the side of the building in Hong Kong, it's just like covered with 
<laughs> stick them everywhere. The like, yeah, that's that's fair. I maybe, but but anyway, like I think we are seeing the beginning of like organic market adoption. It's just slower and it's mostly a commodity right now. There's things about comfort and purifying your air and stuff that like can help. But like most of the time people are just like, what's the cost versus like an car. I mean, it's not a commodity at all. Like people, a lot of Tesla buyers have never spent that much money on a car before. They're just right. hyped about the car. So like there's probably more space to play and like get people into it. But I like, I think heat pumps are on the way. I think, my thesis or my feeling about it is just like, it's going to take a long time. No one thinks about their HVAC system that much. People think about cars all the time. Well, I think what you're proposing basically, which is new to me, is like, there is some potentially, I don't think it's as obvious as like driving a Tesla versus some other car in the same price point, some performance benefit outside of like CapEx and OpEx analysis of like heat pumps like cleaner air, you get it from geothermal, it's like local, it's resilient or whatever. It's uh, controllable through software, Colleen. I know we're going to get into flexibility eventually, so there's going to be added savings there. But it does feel like, I think like looping this back into the, the cultural thing, I don't know what it is. And it's funny, I argue with my brother about this all the time, how like he drives like a stick shift and he's like, I'm going to drive mean, it these until I'm dead. Yeah. Cause it feels great. Like American muscle baby, you know what I mean? Like screw Tesla's. So it's not universal that everyone like loves Tesla or whatever, but I think there's just this element of whether it's heat pumps or nest or like your phone in your hand, a Tesla, like something kind of sexy and clean. Like it doesn't make noise. Like my brother bought an electric weed whacker the other day and it was like so quiet. Yeah. All those like home appliances that are electric are so much better. So you just they don't just have to like feel like the future. Fuck like, around not even with kidding. like oil and stuff. Like Right. And you got to yeah. like, it's like, you're like running this freaking like lawnmower. You have to like fill it up with diesel and it smells. And like, there's just something like I plug this thing in and it works that like is kind of sexy and intuitive and like, there may be some natural adoption, like even if it's on par economically. Basically what you're saying is for those things, like you actually use them. So if they're good, you're going to love it versus HVAC. Right. Like you don't like use your HVAC. It's just there. No, no, no. I'm saying like you may be introducing that, like whether it's the usage, like performance being better, you know, that electrified connected home with like your Alexa and it can speak to, uh, you know, a heat pump easier. It's a bit more interesting than like, and it connects to electricity markets than like a boiler in like a cement room downstairs or something. There's just like, you know, a, something I think that exists maybe in the, like we were talking about the home appliances or cars or whatever. Like what you're saying is like, don't just look at a boiler versus a heat pump from CapEx and OpEx like comparisons you're like there is some added performance idea of it that i'm that i'm kind of buying right now is what i'm saying like i'm like maybe that 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 element of what i'm talking about like an electric weed whacker can be introduced into like everything that is electric yeah, yeah i think for so. the consumer yeah. like it's just kind of there's a, a product aspect of it that people like like it's quiet and it's clean and it's cool like like that company um Tre treo true i always pronounce their name wrong like cool, like heat pump for your window, like kind of like the nest, but for like the, the hardware, like the the unit itself. It's like the Tesla of window unit ACs. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. It, it does heating and cooling and it, it uses like a refrigerant that like doesn't kill the earth and stuff, which is a good thing and like performs better in cold climates. I think what I'm getting at and, and we can move on when I talk about like technology versus cultural shift, like embedded in a technological shift is this like idea of how it's like culturally <laughs> interacted with. Right. Yeah. And like, I think there's really something there with like electrification. So we've talked about kind of like market adoption, desirability, like benefits, costs. Is it maybe time to zoom out a little bit and think about, you know, if people adopt this stuff, like what does it mean for the system? How do we actually deliver all this power? Like, is it different or is it just more like questions like that? Yeah, I think a really interesting way to sink our teeth in is actually like anecdotally and you talking about like 
a power system for a bus depot in the middle of a high density city that like used to be gas and they're converting to electric, <laughs> like what the utility actually has to do to like deliver how, like how much power is a bus depot? Like basically you're like, yeah, this bus depot wants to build EV infrastructure. They need like 20 megawatts of power. If you're wondering, I don't know, that's like Hudson Yards, you know? There's two really complicated things with bus charging. One is like, when will buses need to charge? Like, is everybody charging at night at the same time? In which case you need 20 megawatts. Are people charging en route, right? Like some of the bus chargers that I've seen are like 100 to 150 kW in a, in a depot, but on route charging is like 450 kW. Yeah, you need like a very fast charge while you're sitting there for 20 minutes or something. But that's like fewer of those, right? And it's more distributed. That's like a top-up charge, kind of. You don't right? have like 20 ports in the depot. You have like one kind of periodically. Yeah. Um, maybe other distribution feeders like throughout Here the and city. There. Yeah. Now, I think the depot thing's interesting because, yeah, you basically have what historically has been a parking lot with like maybe a, like a little building for like some people to be in and like some diesel mechanics to do diesel mechanic stuff in you're turning it into like a massive power user and the people who work there have never really had to think about power before there isn't any like real like switch gear on site the power service to the building is probably like it might even be single phase like they like there's just like not a lot going on there to suddenly like the most important element of their operation is power so even if it's possible there's like a big cultural well, it is possible. I, I don't want to say even if it is possible, but there's a big cultural change. In a way, we're almost starting with the most difficult problem because like putting an EV charger in someone's home is like different than <laughs> putting down 20 megawatts of bus chargers in the middle of a city. That stuff that's being mandated like from the top, right? It's like, well, we have to electrify our, our fleet by 2030. So they'll kind of throw money at it, which in a way is like going to kind of accelerate, you know, this permitting, like building cultural, like you said, like operationally, like figuring out all these, all these problems that could kind of broaden out into the rest of the ecosystem. Because you're starting with like a very difficult problem that that kind of has to be solved because it's like governments pushing it, right? You know, there is a big user benefit though. Like from a system perspective, it might be hard to deal with these bus depots, but for the municipality itself, like once they get them and get used to them and figure out how to use them and plan around them, you know, buses are such a good use case for battery storage electric vehicles because they drive the same amount of miles every day. Like they have just like a defined user pattern and maintenance is like so much, so much dramatically less. And obviously buses, you know, run on diesel, which from the municipality's perspective, the pollution problem is like, a pain they actually feel it's not like abstract it's like right. the communities like next to this roads like get asthma yeah i mean have you ever been walking in like midtown and a bus just like burped exhaust into your face and you're like <laughs> excuse <laughs> you know, me like, that <laughs> yeah. doesn't exist that doesn't exist in the uh uh the electric future right like user benefits i live on the ground floor right outside a bus stop and like I would love if we had EV buses purely for the noise benefit. These huge diesel engines are idling outside my house all the time, um, especially when I'm working from home because of coronavirus. Like I'm losing my mind from diesel engines. But that's a side side note. What's also maybe like harder but easier about <laughs> electrifying buses is that from a utility planning perspective it's like much more knowable in advance and it's also i think much easier to like coordinate changing the charging times or like coming up with a flexible rate for a transit authority than it is to like try and convince customers when to charge or not charge so it's like a much just like more straightforward problem to solve yeah but i kind of dig our so are we talking about flexibility right now because i dig the latter problem because that's like heavy like actual totally. data science and software that like theoretically we're out there to like eventually try and solve and like work with fleet operators and stuff like i think it's a cool like fun problem i'm not saying it's not a cool fun problem i'm just saying <laughs> it's definitely something that needs to be resolved as you grow right as you electrify like you can't have every bus 
and every car being like, it's midnight and at midnight, the price is really cheap. So let's all plug in our, you know, EVs and break the grid every day. Like your original, like this could work, but we need flexibility markets. So now that we kind of know like, okay, there's this electrifying transportation problem. So you're, you know, indirectly saying the way to solve that is you need to like coordinate when the best times are to do that. One is through like actually delivering power, but then also probably the the price of it as well. So I feel like you're kind of like hinting at flexibility, but like, so does that, that doesn't exist today. No, like I think the way most utilities to date have dealt with EV charging is to put people on like special time of use rates when they join, not even necessarily time of use rates. Like sometimes it's a time of use rate where maybe it's more expensive at certain times and other times it's actually credit, right? So it's like, if you charge between midnight and 8am, we'll pay you X amount so that you're, you know, essentially you're saving money and it's like very inexpensive charging. And so that these end use specific Rates. Yeah, it's yeah. end use specific and it works really well when people are like just starting to sign up and you don't have massive EVs. But if you have a midnight to 8 a.m. rate and you have, you know, a whole feeder where everyone owns an EV, like that doesn't work if everyone's set their timer for midnight for their EV to start charging. This is like some Samuel Insel shit, you know, like seriously, it's like. Figuring out capacity factor and like assigning different rate classes to different end uses. Well, this goes back to our something we've talked about, I think, in Veter and in probably other things too, like static time of use rates versus just like dynamic pricing. Right. And like, yeah, what we're saying is that like you probably need actually dynamic rates to make this work. The more you electrify, the more dynamic rates become important because otherwise you're your load is can be so high, right? Like your your difference between like everything on and like 50% on is just a much bigger delta than it is today. Right. But so I think what, I, what I'm getting at and bringing up Samuel Insel is like typically when we're having the flexibility <laughs> discussion, we're talking about like, okay, you install a battery. It's not like really increasing like the total load in the building. Like maybe if at your peak, you're charging it also, which you're never going to be doing. It's always going to be the inverse, right? So you're, you're always flattening the peak. The infrastructure conversation is actually left out of that flexibility aspect. But when you talk about EVs, if you have like a, say, if all of your buses were plugged in at once, like you had a 20 megawatt peak load at a bus depot, if I'm the utility, would I be like, I'm only going to give you 15 megawatts and you got to figure out the optimization shit because like, we can't even meet like whatever, like don't plug in everything at the same time, the, the grid will break. So there's like a very real infrastructure component of this. And I think um, Amp Control, Joaquin, like they, like when they, when, when they look at like their optimization, they talk about the CapEx savings, right? Because like, increasing infrastructure for EVs is so massive that you need to kind of consider how you're going to optimize after things are built to like avoid, like avoided distribution costs in a way. And so when we talk on the grid today about like installing batteries and how that influences avoided distribution costs, it's it's sort of nebulous in a way because we're talking about almost like all, it's all retrofits, but this is like greenfield stuff, right? With assets we know can be optimized. So I think it's a really interesting discussion in that, like me, the flexibility markets guy, like obviously in the company I'm building, I'm like, it kind of makes sense for the utility to do a time use rate because like, we're talking about like the infrastructure, like the, the, there's going to be a local blackout because they can't push all that power through a feeder if everyone sort of uh, turns on at the same time. So yes, there's like the the commodity portion of the bill, like the prices of power at those times they need to charge, but then there's also the actual delivery and like EVs in a way that other DERs we talk about, you need to optimize around both distribution and the commodity, which I think is interesting and I haven't really thought of to date. And so I think one direction this goes, and I'm not even kidding, like I've I've thought about it and I'm just just realizing now this, this is why, is like we could go back to like trolley codes that were all in their own private power infrastructure back in the install days like in the 30s before we had this massive build out of the grid 
like trolleys that ran on electricity through the cities on their rails, they were all on their own private grid. Like they were all on a microgrid. They were not like plugged into the kind of bulk grid. I'm sure there's gonna be situations where utilities are like, no, we can't like build this EV infrastructure, especially as adoption rates increase, or like we can't build this bus depot. Or if you do, you, you gotta build like, you know, 50 million, $100 million in infrastructure so the company is just going to be like, well, I'll just build a microgrid. Like I'll call Duncan, you know, can you build me some solar batteries generators and uh, can we use the natural gas infrastructure or something like that? Right. So like the flexibility discussion in EVs, I think is like much more multifaceted than in kind of the, the more general DER conversation, I guess. The ability to change when you're doing charging is like you have a lot more options to like optimize your system than you do with like a heat pump right it's like if it's zero degrees outside i don't have the option to be like i'll just turn my heat pump on in an hour it's like no i'm cold now and everyone else is cold right and now. everyone else is cold like it's not just like right i need my car charged right now but your neighbor might not you're talking about like price elasticity basically is like the trader term for it yeah, electric vehicle charging feels a like it's a lot more price elastic than winter heat pump use on very cold. Interesting. I, yeah, no, I think that's right on. The the other side of it is like on like the biggest commuter day of the year or something. Like you may have like these specific like massive peaks that yeah like the day before Thanksgiving is just like Ooh, a charging right like nightmare. travel day. Yeah, exactly. Like it's interesting. Travel days like traffic becomes like. The biggest traffic days of the year become like the biggest power problem days of the year. That's the day you, you you know you take the tarp off the old stick shift gasser, and you know you you drive to grandma's, <laughs> like because you don't want to wait in right. line at the electric because everyone America else is station. getting railed with power prices. Yeah, I'm like suckers, I'm in my dual fuel. You know, yeah. yeah, all of a sudden you're like, oh shit, it's five hundred dollars to drive home. <laughs> like how the grid's firing up their oil peaker plant at the time. Anyway. Um, so, yeah, I think it's really interesting to think about the degree to which these resources are flexible. It seems like EVs are probably more flexible, although not always, but generally. Um, heat pumps, I mean, I guess it's similar, though. Like, on an average day where you need a little bit of heat, like, it's probably pretty flexible. Like, you can ramp it down a bit, ramp it back up later. On the peak day, you're probably, like, rejecting that, you know, automated demand response ping on your nest. You're like, no. I'm not turning the thermostat, you know, down. I want my heat. Right. And I'm sure there'll be some people who are willing to go, you know, down a couple degrees, like one or two days a year if they're getting compensated for it. But I think you're going to see higher opt-out rates than you do in summer demand response. Because I think people just generally, like, don't, I don't think people generally keep their apartment or home, like, a lot warmer than they need it to in winter. Yeah. And the Delta from, like, winter ambient temperature to indoor temperature is much larger than the delta of summer ambient to indoor mm -hmm. temperature. So a couple degrees, yeah, you maybe do that in the summer. You're like, what's the difference between 70 and 73? I don't care. But like, you know, the difference between 70 and 67 is still like relative to the demand generated by your heat pump in the winter, like not that much, you know, you'd need like, like a 10, a 15 degree difference to be equivalent to what you're doing in the summer with demand response. So I think, I think that's tricky, right? The same expectation from the summer to the winter in far, as far as like degree flexibility as a percentage of demand is less in the winter. And so you still have on that zero degree day, crazy, crazy electric demand. And I, th I think, you know, it's, it's, it's true in like the consumer cards, like the same price and elasticity uh bus depots are different because they're like planned routes or whatever it's kind of almost like commercial buildings but what i just realized in like kind of hearing you both talk is that when we started the episode duncan was like yes but the infrastructure is going to be a problem and colleen was like yes but we need flexibility markets there's actually a really interesting way in which those two things intersect so my injection into the conversation is Franchise rights. <laughs> because I mean, like, me more. <laughs> so I think where we always like break down in this discussion is like, Colleen, when you say flexibility 
and Duncan, you say like this distribution infrastructure problem, I kind of see those as, as, as very similar. Like I see that the, the grid changing in like these really fundamental ways where, where things are getting more distributed as like the, the same problem almost. And that if you remove the ability to price infrastructure building through some other third party that's not the utility, you actually put like an artificial constraint on your ability to price or like solve that problem, much in the way, Colleen, that you believe like on the, on the commodity sides, you, you need this flexibility, like price responsive assets so that like they're, they optimize properly, right? So like when I talk about like trolley systems, I guess, I guess like what I hear in, in kind of looking at, at the EV problem is that your two responses originally to the, to the initial prompt, I mean, they're not the same thing, but like deeply related in a way that I think both involve a fundamental rethink in how the grid is built, right? And that's why I always come back to franchise rights because I'm like, maybe there'll be more private infrastructure. Maybe there will be more kind of fragmented utilities because I know like when you're trying to build maybe public charging stations, like utilities, once adoption rates get high enough, are just gonna slap like massive bills on these people for building that infrastructure. Like, what are we gonna do, rate base it? Every, we just said like we need to double the size, like the amount of power flowing on the grid to do like just transportation and space heating. That means everyone's rates are going to double if you need to double the, the size of the infrastructure and then rate base it, right? You know what I mean? Like, I think there's like, I, I don't know how you can do it. Like on the, on the one hand, I'm like time of use rates make sense. But on the other hand, I'm like, I don't think they'll work. I mean, they involve the distribution component. So I'm like, I go, I always go in the total opposite direction of like, we need dynamic pricing. We need flexibility on like all aspects of this problem, not just the, the like commodity delivery. So I'm, I'm kind of interested in your, your thoughts here on like how being able to build multiple systems that aren't interacting is going to increase efficiency. Yeah. Shouldn't networking things improve flexibility? Yeah. I'm kind of on team utility here, which is whoop, wild. Whoop. But uh, <laughs> yeah, why would building unnetworked systems help deal with distribution? Well, I'm not saying unnetworked. I'm saying we don't need one monolithic infrastructure. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. Just insofar as who builds on this and operates. Like it. I can build a generator for my bus depot and I'm like, I'm not using it 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. So, uh, bought, oh, there's a commercial building. They need power. I'm just going to build a line over there and he's going to get four cent per kilowatt hour power in the middle of New York City. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, still grid connected, but, but yeah. yeah, I see what you're but, saying. But yeah. you have more agency in, in how the nodes are connected. And obviously, so like, I don't think it ends up in this like hyper frag fragmented decentralized grid or like everyone's off grid, which everyone, when we're having this conversation, like imagines what I'm proposing. I'm like, it may end up that there's like four utilities or even like a duopoly in, in New York. You know what I mean? Like not, just not like Con Ed has the final say on everything built in New York. Like, I don't know how, okay. So here's a question. Like how, how do you price discover a major EV or heat pump, like say in your building Hudson Yards, it's all heat pumps, like massive new load coming on. How do you discover pricing like in that region of the city now efficiently without the, without the possibility of having third party infrastructure owners potentially building, building like the, the way power is carried around in that, in that region? Like you just got to trust Con Ed to like give you the bill. Well, you have to trust the state regulators. Yeah, they're really good at price discovery, right? Big, big market guys. <laughs> I guess I'm saying like either you like trust that the system works or or you don't. But I think like I, I hear your point. I think price discovery like makes things more efficient. I think where it gets complicated is then like the inefficiency of different companies then having to work together. And then you get like consultants who like tell the companies how to work together and how to inter interconnect their stuff. And like the people who have to check that the quality of the things that they're interconnecting I mean, we can still with the have standards, grid work. Like that all runs through the PSC, right? I, I, you know. Yeah, I just think I guess what I'm saying is like you're you are you're gaining efficiencies in some respect in terms of price competitiveness, but you are losing efficiency in terms of having to like have someone manage bids and manage the system and check that the standards are being upheld. Like 
I don't think it's just like a simple, it's, it's easy. No, I, I, I agree. And I don't, I don't propose that like the system I talk about is more efficient. I actually think, you know, one of the problems of modernity, like if you've read your, your Taleb is this idea of efficiency being like the, the deity we should all pray to, right? <laughs> like, cause efficiency basically is the antithesis of resiliency. Like Duncan, I think the reason no one wants to price resiliency into the system is because it's like less efficient. Costs money. Yeah, it costs money. So like, you know, the resiliency of like EV charging infrastructure, like maybe that that's a totally different conversation. I'm not I'm not saying like, oh, a resilient system's more important here. I'm I'm saying more that variables like resiliency point to the fact that the right question isn't always what's the most efficient way of doing this. Right. <laughs> like because obviously, if you build like one central thing, it'll be more efficient, like, you know, or, or whatever, but, but it may not be optimal, depending on how the how you define optimal. Yeah, you know, there's mo many more variables that go into it besides just like cost. So totally. And I, and I do think that there should like, you know, I think as we came to in the franchise rights conversation, like there should be ability to like have the one off cases where something's like really big, or you want to do something like really out there and wild right like maybe there is something around a really large bus depot that wants to like build infrastructure that allows for them to charge all of their buses at once but knows that they won't need to do that most times and so they also want to like be able to share some of that extra infrastructure with like a neighboring office building or industrial complex or something right like there's there and that should probably like there should probably be some way of doing that my response to that is what I'm basically proposing is I think the edge cases increasingly become the norm. And the reason I said like, this is insane. What we're trying to do at the start of the episode is like, we're trying to like change the economy from a combustion economy to, to electrifying the economy. And it's not going to work within like the current constraints of the system. Like the, the edge, like, Oh, bus depot, or maybe it's, you know, it's, there's tons of anecdotes we could talk about. Like, in rural areas or like smaller townships or cities or whatever. I think like those or Hudson Yards being this like anomaly where they built a, a district energy plant and got approval from the utility. Like, I think the edge cases become the norm. It's going to happen with such frequency that like we have to standardize it. I don't know. I think you're, I agree with you that it's crazy. And I agree with you that we'll have edge cases, but I also kind of think like the new deal was all about like rural electrification. And I think we're kind of going to have to like double the grid and that's going to happen. Like you kind of just need to like go all in on that. You need to be like, we need to build this infrastructure and it's important right. and we need to get it done. And I kind of feel like we just need to go the way we went before, which is just like give a utility money and tell them to build it. Right. Two things here. One, I, and I'm not settled on this. I mean, maybe intuitively I am obviously by, by my rant the past three five years of my existence like whether through medium or on podcast or whatever but there are times in history where public money is the right way to do it like i agree like you just get behind the freaking thing and you just build it there's other where the right regulations have unlocked the power of markets and that's actually what what did it right and so mm -hmm. like my basic i think intuition in all this is the current institutions that were established basically in the New Deal and through fossil fuels, like over the past 70 years, essentially, clearly by the rate we're moving right now are, are not prepared to lead this transition. And so I think they need to be toppled in order to, you know, actually accelerate the transition. Like that's my fundamental kind of view on things. So I, I guess that would like, obviously put me in the camp of okay like deregulate everything and just like let this thing rip and like markets will will, will figure it out more than like let's just like pile more money into like these bloated utilities already to to figure it out for us like i don't have any faith in that institution anymore so i think we need to build new ones and so i'm not opposed to public money and doing that i'm just like if if we think we're going to hand money to these gatekeepers and they're going to do it right for us. I don't think that's possible. Like, I don't think that's going to happen. I think it's naive. Like, that's kind of where I am fundamentally. And I, I know it's like, th there's a nuance around this that I'm just kind of applying this monolithic thought on, on, <laughs> onto the situation. But, but that, that's kind of how that's, I view it. 
Yeah, it's okay. I mean, I view it the opposite way. Um, <laughs> I, I, I sort of am like, if you want, if you want to drive adoption, and I think this goes back to like, do we think adoption is coming naturally? Do we think that we need to push adoption? But if you want to drive adoption of electrification in a lot of places, you need to be pushing it, right? Like people aren't going to buy, right? Like I bought a hybrid car this year because I really wanted an electric car, but there's nowhere for me to charge a car. So unless, and like, no one's going to build a charging station until people have cars. So while you, <laughs> so while you have these like situations where you're like, I don't know how to make this happen, like allowing like a utility to build infrastructure so that people can come in and, and build charging stations, I feel like is a way to socialize that cost. Let, let me put it this way. I'm just going to, because this is going to be the endless debate between Colleen and I. I'm going to put out a hypothesis right now and we can check in on it in like a year. All right. Task force, are you ready to keep us honest on this? <laughs> <laughs> so I think what we'll find is that as adoption, I think that it's clear that the demand is there for EVs, for solar, for batteries, adoption rates are, are continuing to go up for heat pumps and stuff like it's unclear but I, like as Duncan said I think we can get there for, for various reasons you know as, as far as electrifying everything the, the demand is there so over time as adoption rates continue to increase I think we'll find and here's the hypothesis that utilities on a general sort of aggregate basis act as inhibitors on that progress instead of accelerators so it's it's hard to say like okay, uh, well, what does that mean? Like, how does it present itself? The way it will present itself is like, when these infrastructure pro uh, projects have to happen, they won't because utilities actually don't want to do it. They can't, get, they can't rate base it. They can't get approval, blah, blah, blah. Like, I think that's what's going to happen. And it, that's not true. Like the reason, uh, like, I think Con Ed is like one of the best, utilities. like they let Hudson Yards happen. They worked with the private sector to do that. I'm not saying this is true of all utilities. I think there's a lot of utilities out there who get it, who realize where this is going. But I'd say like in on an aggregate basis, much of the utilities as, as the institutional powers they are today will inhibit progress instead of accelerate it. That is a bold claim. And we'll check in on a year there because I don't think either of us is going to change our minds now. <laughs> One thing about it I do think is related and interesting is you know, all this load we're adding to the system and all these, all this new distribution we have to build for it. And when we, you know, step back and think about where the supply is increasingly coming from, which is these kind of like low inputs kind of generation sources, you know, low marginal cost, like, you know, not burning as much fuel. Like generally the system is shifting from inputs and throughputs to infrastructure. Right. And I, I do think that's like super interesting to ponder, like we're moving away from, I mean, and you said this yourself, but like putting fuels into the system and we're moving toward just like building up the system. Um, we're moving from OPEX to CAPEX. And yeah, I think it is going to have huge impacts. Um, and it's just generally like a big energy transition theme. We're building a big, heavy network pretty much um, and have minimal marginal cost, like OPEX type things happening. But anyway, that's really just, I don't know, a, a question uh, or a, a, a thought that comes out of this. But really where I wanted to go is completely different, which is we've talked a lot about the load that comes from electrification. And we just spent a lot of time on the load that comes from EVs. What about V to G? Like, how should we think about vehicle to grid where like maybe these these new loads can also be supply at times, like not just orchestrating the demand to be, you know, sort of grid wise or whatever people say now, but like actually using them as, as battery storage for the grid as well. Like, is there anything to this? Like I've been hearing about it for a long time, but I don't have a good sense of like, is this going to happen or not? Yeah. So I know that um, there's a really cool pilot that, I actually don't know what the results are of it, but um, that kind of had run, which was with school buses, like electric school buses that then in the summer when you aren't using them can be like portable, like oh, battery yeah. feeders into the grid. Yeah, they're super low utilization batteries. So might mm -hmm. as well use them for something. 
Yeah. So obviously like, right. The big thing, the main issue with V2G is battery warranties. So I think as you get more research into it from people who are willing to like void their batteries, um, <laughs> slash if Tesla just decides that they think it's important. Cause I feel like they're trying to figure that out. We'll get there. Right. And so I think I, I, I feel like we're like five years from like V to G. And then once it's unlocked, I think it's going to like be huge. That's actually interesting. Cause like I would go to Tesla and like share some of the profits of selling, like basically having a new supply source to them to like lower the cost at the point of sale. And then maybe they could like work that into warranty. Right. Like, because mm-hmm. if they're like warranting this battery and then the customer goes abuses it and gets all the benefit and it like degrades the system that changes uh, like they don't have any incentive there to like change it but imagine like as that space progresses like that 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 feels like a very solvable issue i guess i'll take it a step further i think where it makes sense is third party ownership of vehicles like leased vehicles yeah. or um like the future electric autonomous network or whatever when someone other than the end user owns the vehicle who is sophisticated and who can think about degradation risk and maybe has a tie with the manufacturer who understands it better than anyone and can bring in david energy or whomever to actually manage manage this like then i think it's really interesting because yeah it then just results in being able to offer lower cost of service to the end user so going even another step further <laughs> is it can't be done. <laughs> I think so basically I think you could offer a concurrent you, like basically electricity or gas could be included in the cost of a lease because like three years is not too long to sign like a commodity deal because like in network basically like a predefined charging network mm-hmm. you can sell you can buy like we could figure out that optimization over time. I was like, why hasn't this happened with gas though? Like, why don't, why isn't gas costs included with leases? Like maybe this could be flimsy, but like you can't control or optimize. Like there's no, like there's no like software component where you know like where they're charging, when they're charging, how frequently they charge there. Like there's not enough like data or information. It would just have to be a big hedge. Yeah. Hedge that. Yeah, essentially. But you, you could like with an EV and a charging station and like power grids. Right. And you can also have a better sense of, what your electric cost would be more so than like a gas station can be like a dollar more next door, like right. for no apparent reason. Right. Yeah, I really think like you wrap all these things together, like demand flexibility from EVs being necessary, the possibility for V to G if you like unlock the value chain in the right way, things like what James just said about like leases and like inc- bundling the, the energy input cost. And like you arrive at something's pretty interesting where a company like Tesla, maybe on their own, maybe with a bunch of partners can like offer a really like all in one kind of service. I mean, throw in solar and batteries too. Why not? Where it's just kind of like, it's true, like residential energy as a service, all the things you do that need energy, your house, your car, here's the monthly price. You don't own anything. When things break, it doesn't matter. Like here's just the price. I, 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 mean, I dig it. You could get there, I think. Here's, I think, where we could bring this full circle and wrap it up. Previously, I was like, efficiency is sort of antithetical to resilience, right? So in today's world, how many times is like the gas, all the gas stations, I mean, there's been fuel shortages, like I guess in the 70s, so maybe it was bad, but like gas and like oil and diesel and this stuff seems to be like a more resilient fuel supply, right, than electricity. So when you talk about electrification and like bundling everything to your home and car and like it's all one embedded price and the price of power and everything, what that means is, is like that runs your life. It better work. Like you better have a hundred percent uptime. So I think like when you, when you talk about electrification, we need to talk about resiliency as like a central issue within that, because if your, your heat stops working in the winter or like your, your car doesn't drive on the days you need it. Like that becomes a way bigger problem than just like, you know, the, the, the outages we experience like every once in a while. And just zooming out, like the economy as a whole is right. going to be running on entirely just in time delivered service with exactly. like no, there's no slack in the system. Like there is, right. when you have a 
fuel oil tank or you know whatever right like the truck doesn't deliver the groceries across the country right like there there are potential like big supply chain and could you get like crazy yeah. butterfly effects where like one issue like messes up one one like chain totally. of supply chain like it, totally. it's kind of interesting to think about luckily i keep 90 days of coal in my backyard so i'm set <laughs> I, d I didn't say this at the beginning of the episode because I, I think you guys would have laughed, but the way I'm like thinking about this in, in my head right now, and you can propose a new name, but what I actually think the electrification transition requires is like as a species moving like out of the age of, you know, we have the iron age, the stone age, like we're in the like fossil fuel or the combustion or the hydrocarbon age right now, however you want to talk about it. We need to move into like the age of the electron, right? And like dunk it, like the, the, the actual driver for that at the end of the day of all this is not like DERS or renewables, it's battery storage. Because like the whole just-in-time delivery side of this, like the fact that we carry our phone around, like yeah, Moore's Law drove like computing power or whatever it is, or we had the internet age concurrent with that. Um, but actually like what powers all of it is like a lithium ion battery in that phone or a lithium ion battery in like the Tesla car. That's what makes like the AC motor work, right? So we can now store, you know, I'm doing air quotes, electrons. It's not actually, you know, it's electrochemical, but where we used to be able to store like oil, you know, is, uh, in like big tanks or whatever. So I, we are, Duncan, I think moving away from this like just in time delivery system to a certain extent. And I think that'll increase over time where we'll have like surpluses of electricity, essentially. Like that's where, where I actually need to need to get to, you know, it, as, as part of uh, resilience. But like resilience should actually be the, the, the kind of fundamental core part of the conversation in electrification, not like CapEx and OpEx and all this stuff. Because like, I, I actually, I know it sounds hyperbolic and like kind of dumb in a lot of ways, but I actually think that's what we're talking about is like a history books 500 years from now age of the electron out of the age of the hydrocarbon we're not blowing shit up anymore we're like powering it with electrons like i think that's what this actually means electrify everything electrify everything i'm down with it i think i think it's what we got to do i think it's better i think it's cooler i think it's cleaner i think it's cheaper it's gonna be cheaper no noise pollution we talk about air pollution but like I live in New York, like get all those loud buses off the street. Like it's oh, just yeah. be better. I think it's just be better. I, I really do. I'm excited for an electric jet ski. I think that's going to be pretty cool. Mm. I've been thinking about this. What if you had a jet ski in New York city and you used it as like a means of transportation? Like you live you uptown. Jet ski, like a, a like you a, live like uptown on, you the, like, on the Hudson. Come down yeah, the Hudson. Yeah, yeah. Like you live in Inwood and you're just like time to go to Fidei to, you know, go I mean, get Wall Do you want to put your suit on and like get the muck of the Hudson on it? Well, <laughs> eh. You change when you get there. You shower at work. Leg. Yeah. Sorry, that was an aside. But no, I, I I really agree. I think like there's a it's hard to imagine it in the short term because it's such a different system. But yeah, you look at that like history books perspective and it's so much better to to have a yeah. system that's fully networked, instantaneous, like much more digital. It, it just makes a ton of sense. And I think we'll get there. Wait, so we agree. Colleen, do we agree? <laughs> I, th I think we all agree. I feel like we're like, let's go electrify some shit. It's going to be beneficial if we get resilience right, if we get flexibility markets right. And if we can actually increase the grid. That's a first. We just like wow. up agree. Wow. This is historic. <laughs> can anyone say something to just like muddy the waters right now? It's kind of uncomfortable in a way. Carbon neutral synthetic fuels. Who knows, man? Maybe like electrify everything is kind of my horse, but like maybe there's gonna be like synthetic methane running through gas pipes in 50 years as well. I, I don't know. I think it's less likely. Because I think it's very energy intensive and doesn't get rid of other problems we have, like noise and local air pollution. Uh, but to some degree, this stuff will exist. I don't know, aviation, right? Like certain uh, certain industry might require synthetic, probably gaseous fuels. There's some use cases for hydrogen, probably. So, like you know, maybe it's like electrify basically everything, not electrify everything. I have no idea what you just said, so but it sounded cool. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if synthetic like 
what i mean i think i know what you're talking about it's just like fake jet fuel that's like carbon yeah neutral. fake jet fuel it yeah. sounds like pretty energy intensive to make but that would be yeah. cool if like everything's green so next next week we're going to talk about smrs and nuclear because we're definitely going to need nuclear to to power all this you know double the capacity of the grid I mean, which is I'm a, a big departure from the, the dr yeah, big departure, but I I I feel like we gotta we gotta go there. Two, I'm gonna explain to Duncan why V to G requires energy only markets because you know capacity penalties don't work at the individual level. Yeah. So these are these are the 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 skirmishes we're gonna have in the future that I wanted to. So don't get too comfortable, now. everybody. Don't get too comfortable. <laughs> Tune in net next week for SMRs and synthetic fuels. <laughs> awesome <laughs> and small and small modular coal oh yeah can't can't forget that yeah we're gonna hammer some shiner box with rick perry and figure it all out <laughs> all right der task force that concludes this episode on electrification if you have any thoughts on it you want to share get on the dtf slack and let us know if you're not on the slack go to our website at dertaskforce.com and you'll see the slack invite on our landing page While you're there, feel free to browse recordings and slides from our recent meetups, including recently posted videos on FERC Quad Deuce and Derms. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.